am a serial failed entrepreneur. Uh, I've failed so it's like Jordan, right? Yeah, I failed so many times and that's why I succeed. But I could not stop betting on myself, right? And I've always been a a leap before I look kind of guy. That, that's the thing about being a, a gambling man when you're gambling on yourself is that you hope that something hits. Welcome to Fortune and Faith, a show about members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and how their faith influenced and oftentimes sustained them as they persevere through obstacles, failures, and challenges on their quest for success. I'm Jason Tang. With all of its glam and glitter, Hollywood isn't always the place where dreams come true. Just ask Kyle Deaver, co-founder and co-owner of Performance Window, a door-to-door sales company headquartered in Murray, Utah. Growing up in greater Los Angeles, Kyle's dad is absent five to six months at a time while working on location for some of Hollywood's biggest blockbusters. And though the prestige and pay provide for the family, it comes at a sacrifice for Kyle and his sisters. Nevertheless, Kyle learns the importance of hard work through the examples of his mother and his father, a trait that carries him through his early teens all the way to adulthood. When I turned 15, I had to go get a job, right? Because he'd give me 20 bucks to go to the movies, but it, what he wouldn't do is he wouldn't give me gas money, wouldn't give me, you know, I had to pay for my own insurance. I did. So my first job I ever had, I worked at a, a Quiznos sub, and it was owned by my next-door neighbor. And I, I was 15 years old. I remember I got fired because uh, I, I think I'm up on the statute of limitations anyway, but uh, – what I would do is I would, I would throw, as I was going down the line, I'd throw pieces of the food in my mouth. And then one time I had one hit me, a piece of chicken hit me in the back of the throat and I coughed it onto the person's sandwich. <laughs> and uh, they saw that on video and they fired me. So that was my first job. Then I went and worked at a Joanne Fabric for three years. And that's where I learned to talk to the ladies because it was just a bunch of old, old grandmas that, you know, had nothing better to do than to hang out at Joanne. And from then, I've had a continuous stream of jobs. I've never, from the time I was 15 years old, I've never not been working. And it's because uh, I, that's what I want to do with my kids is that even though they had money, it was expected that I would go to work, which was, to me, very important. Why do you think your parents did that to you? You, you obviously had the financial resources to to not work, to focus on school, to focus on sports, whatever. Why do you think your parents made that uh, kind of a policy in in the home? You know, I think it's because, and, you know, I think it's because that's how they were raised, right? And they they only know how to raise me the way that they were raised. You know, a, a lot of time, you know, you can only kind of see what you've seen work. They both are very hard workers. And so uh, that was the case with all of my siblings and myself. I, I think it was just an understanding that uh, work – is what's going to be able to advance you at least financially. Right. And the second I got back from my mission, my my mission was paid for by my dad, which was cool, but by my parents, I should say. But when I got back from my mission and especially once I got married, that was it. There was no more anything getting paid for. I had made the decision that now I'm going to be a husband and soon after that, a father. And it's one of those things where they could have helped me out with a couple thousand a month, whatever it is. But one, I'm very glad they didn't. And two, I think they understood that the longer that I would be stuck on the teat, 
the longer it would take me to be able to handle things on my own. So I think it was always the understanding that the second that I decided to be a husband and a father, uh, that's it. I, I make grown man decisions. I got to do some grown man work. Before the grown man work began, though, you decided to serve a mission as a, as a young uh, 19, 20 year old, um, which surely had some formative influence on you and, and who you would become. My mission was one of the most influential moments, times in my life. Uh, it kind of just changed the trajectory for me completely. And I went when I was 20 years old. I, I remember thinking, and, and at the time, it was you only go when you're 19. I remember thinking I wasn't going to go. And I was just, you know, you get in that stage where you're like, uh, how, do I, how do I break the news here that I'm not going on a mission? And it's especially heinous. Well, I mean, it's not especially heinous, but there's not very many missionaries that leave from you know, the San Fernando Valley. And so it's a lot of pressure. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, I got to let them know at some point. And they'd be asking and say, well, so you, you're just not going to go? And I'd be like, no, no, I don't know. And I remember I was I was walking to my car or walking from my car into, into Pierce College, right? And it was the first time of only two times that I've had the Holy Ghost yell at me. And it was just, you're going on a mission. And I wasn't even thinking about it. And I said, well, uh, I guess I'm going on a mission. It was, uh, there was only one other time in my life that I've had the Holy Ghost yell at me. And so it was so, so powerful. I wasn't even thinking about it that I, that I, it, it almost made it easy on me. I, I had, I, I couldn't deny it. Uh, so going on my mission, honestly, it, for me, it doesn't matter. I, I'm so happy I got to go to South Africa. It was English speaking, which was awesome and foreign. Uh, uh, but it doesn't matter if you go to South Africa or Boise, Idaho, and you take the bus to your mission. If you lean into those two years, it, it changes you. Uh, it's the first time in your life that you're the guy, right? That you're not just uh, a kid at church. You're not just a son or a brother. What you are is you are out delivering a message and, and, and don't, dedicating two years of your life to a much higher purpose. Uh, it's not, not only the best two years. It is in my opinion, one of the most important two years of my entire life. Yeah, you talked about that. You said it's, you know, your words were, it was two of the two years of the most, you know, the, those years were the most influential of your life. I, I see a lot of young men in, in in this day and age, and they're struggling about going on a mission. What was it that was so influential that it, it, it's still, you know, all these years later, uh, 10, 15 years later now, that you still call those two years the most influential of your life? Yeah, a few things. One, I remember in the MTC, it's the first time that you ever, you know, there, there's the concept of godly sorrow, right? Which is the realization that you've you've hurt your your God, right? And it's the step to, to true repentance. Uh, I got to experience that. Uh, the miracles that led up to it, but most importantly, it was the miracles that happened during my mission. I mean, there was the cool parts of seeing people get healed and 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 seeing people gain a testimony, pray, and receive those answers. Just the miracles that you get to see and the miracles that you get to feel for the rest of my life now, I know it's like it says in Alma, those who have sought to sing the song of redeeming love, can you feel so now? No matter what happens, I can never deny that I have felt those things, right? It, 
whether I, you know, I'm living in iniquity and, and want to leave the church, I'll never, ever be able to deny that I have felt those things. And so that's one of the biggest anchors in my life that's held me so close to the church is that no matter what happens, I cannot and will not ever be able to deny the testimony building feelings that I had on my mission. And that's why it was so influential is that no matter how successful I get, no matter what happens in my life, I can never deny the church. I can never deny that. I know that I've had the confirmation that is true. So those two years being able to dedicate myself on a spiritual level have tied me to the gospel forever on a not so spiritual level, it allowed me to go out there and understand you set goals, you make these metrics, you achieve them, right? And so in my work life and financial life, it it taught me that if you put work into something, you will grow a passion for it, right? If you put work into scripture study and and knowing, knowing scripture mastery, you will grow to love it. If you put work into introducing yourself to strangers, you will grow to love it, right? Where practice doesn't make perfect. It makes, it makes permanent, right? And if you practice these things, it creates passion. And I love that, that you shared that because we go out there and, you know, Oh, we're blessing and, and serving the individuals of, you know, the, whoever we're called to serve. I was, ser- I was serving in Oakland, California myself. Um, but the, the real convert and the real person is, is, is each of us that, that, that comes back with these amazing experiences and this incredible testimony that, that we do need as we continue on because challenges continue to happen. Uh, when you get back from your mission, what, what's next? Are you going to college? You, you looking for work? You know, what, where's the path taking you once you get home? Yeah, so when I first got back, uh, I, I hung out in, uh, in L.A. for about three or four months, and I remember I went to the singles ward, and I was dating, and, uh, you know, I remember the strangest feeling is that I was dating, I dated three, four, five girls, because I'd gone two years not, not even getting to sideways glance at a girl, so I was pumped. I get back, and I remember thinking for, for a little bit, I was like, uh-oh, I might be broken because I would take these girls out on dates, you know, I'd, I'd be kissing the girl, and I'd, I would feel nothing. I was like, oh, man, something's broken inside of me. And then I met this girl named Andrea who uh, would eventually become my wife, and it was the quickest confirmation possible to me. It was it was like two weeks, and I told her I loved her, and I, I felt like a chum. <laughs> but Did she say it back, though? That- Did she say it back to you? Uh, no, no, she, okay. said, Thank you. <laughs> she did me dirty, but, uh, yes, she, uh, eventually though, come July, I, I got back in, in March, July, I moved to St. George, uh, to go to Dixie. The good thing about uh, Utah tech university now, but Dixie, then all you needed was a heartbeat and a social security number. So they took me right in and, uh, eventually she, she moved out, uh, to there and, uh, and we got married, and then three months later, uh, we got pregnant with our first. The The big thing is that Andrea is five years older than me, and I've often thought that she didn't rob the cradle. I robbed the grave. And uh, when, we, when, you, when you get married, I was 23, about to be 24, but with her being five years older, it was time to start having kids. So at 24 years old, I, I became a father, and it, uh, it was uh, the start – uh, becoming a father at that age makes it 
that there's no more ability to be a boy, right? It's the, the old axiom of when I was a child, I did childish things. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. And it forces you to do so. You you no longer have the option to do what do what you want. You now must do what you must. And and so as a young father and and taking on these responsibilities, obviously we know that the role of men typically is to provide and protect. So what are, you, what are you doing now to provide? Because it's not just you, right? It's a, you're not single anymore. You now have a wife and a child. So what are you doing to, to, to make money? What are you studying? What are you hoping to, to, to do? Yeah, so Andrea, my wife, she is the child of immigrants. And so she always had it in her heart that she wanted to get her degree to repay them in a way for, for making the sacrifices to allow her to be born in this country. Because of that, though, we couldn't both go to school. She was going to school, but I had to work three jobs at the time. And so what it would be is that uh, I would work at a title and escrow company uh, as a marketer during the day. At night, I would go and uh, serve tables. Uh, most of most of my most of my work ethic and and understanding of, of pressure comes from serving tables. I. Honestly, serving tables at a restaurant is one of the best things you can do for yourself in learning how to deal with pressure and time management, keeping things going. Uh, and then I, uh, I, I, I would cycle through a couple different things. I had, uh, I had this junk haul business, but then uh, for a time there, I was working this graveyard shift at Diamond Ranch Academy, which is a school for where they – people with some money, they'll send their kids to basically it's a reform school. Their, their kids, but at any given point, I was always working about two or three jobs usually to try and, and that was one of the big things that my parents did for me is that they provided a lifestyle that I very much wanted to have. They weren't providing money for me to do so. So if I wanted to have that lifestyle, I needed to go kill myself to do so. And one of the big things for me was that I was stressed all the time. Uh, you know, I was trying to keep a nostril above water, but for some reason I, you know, and much to, she didn't know it at the time, but I would just keep those things to myself. I, I wouldn't let, let on that I was stressed. And, uh, when I was growing up, you know, if I, if I would be crying, my old man would say, well, you can't talk to me until you stop crying. So it was kind of bred into me that crying or, or complaining or, or, reaching out for help is not something you do. And so I would internalize a lot of that. And I catch myself doing that now with my kids. When I'm, when my daughter's crying, I'll say, well, you can't talk to me until you're done crying. And I think to myself, why am I doing that? I'm perpetuating something that uh, I wish I didn't have in me, uh, but it is there. But uh, as I was doing all these things, I was, I was stressed to the max. I would just keep it to myself. I mean, I'd still be an, an, an angry, uh, angry dude sometimes, but uh, that's that's what I had to do. So she could reach her dream of, of getting a degree. She became a teacher. Uh, I had to grind myself into the dust to make sure we could keep a nostril above water. Stress because of, of finances, or stress because of other, you know, you know, the pressures that are, are happening in life. Well, definitely, it'd, it'd be the finances, right? Because the thing also that I've got. I've got this thing that ticks inside of me that I would, I've got perpetual small fish syndrome, right? I'd go hang out with uh, these guys. I, I remember we'd play a once a week 
game of cards, right? And I was by far the brokest dude in that room. And I would look around and just feel so small and just, just know that I must reach their level. And now I've come a long way, but even still, I, I, you know, even though I'm in an incredible financial position, I'll still be in a room and feel like a small fit. I, I'm constantly wanting to be the dumbest guy in the room. I constantly want to be the brokest guy in the room so that I can, I can always feel like my back's against the wall and I'm still swinging. And so while that's been good for me, it's allowed me to continue to push. It's all, it's also a, an albatross around my neck, always making me, uh, making me feel the stress of not being as much as I want to be. And that carries over, not just financially though. A lot of, uh, of course, a lot of how I think is in terms of financial with my role as a provider, but it's, you know, I want to be a better man. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better member of the church. Uh, so that's just always been my mentality. I would drive around neighborhoods and look at these giant houses and want to go knock on the door and say, Hey, what do you do? And I'll, I'll come work for you for free so I can come do what you do. I've just always had this thing inside of me and it's envy, right? But it's not envy of what people have. It's envy of what people are able to achieve, right? The, the money is a byproduct of what, of what you can achieve. I'm so envious of people's skills and, and abilities. Even now, I, I remember we were driving back from Salt Lake and I stopped by one of my offices to pick something up. And there was a guy in another office. It was 11 PM and he was working. And I was like, man, I wish I had something to be doing right now at 11 PM. I was, I was jealous that he was there burning the midnight oil. You know what I mean? And that's what it's always been for me is I'm, I'm so in awe of what people can achieve, right? It's not about the money. Mon- money's great and all, but it's about what people, uh, the the indomitable will of uh, of the human spirit. You know, it's just so exciting to see what people can do. But I love that. I, I think that's a great trait to have. And you've put it to the test because you are successful now. But going back to where you are, where you're keeping a nostril above water, and and you're seeing others who, you know, you're envious of, of what they're able to accomplish, but you've got a fire burning inside of you. So what are you doing now to take all that passion you have to do something and how do you go about and achieve it? So, uh, I am a serial failed entrepreneur, right? Uh, I've failed. So it's like Jordan, right? Yeah. I failed so many times and that's why I succeed, but I could not stop betting on myself. Right. And, uh, Andrea's greatest con- contribution to our success has always been incredibly supportive, but it's been at least four or five times that I'd come home and say, Hey, I quit my job today. Just so you know, uh, because it was always on to the next. And, and so what I was doing at that time is I've, I've always been the idea, man, always. Uh, and I, it's definitely for my, my, my ADHD. It just, I can't keep my, I, I, I can't stop thinking about things, but at that time it was, okay, I'll start this business. I'll do this, this, this. And I've always been a, a leap before I look kind of guy always. And you know, it's, that, that's the thing about being a, a gambling man when you're gambling on yourself is that you hope that something hits and, but well, what's I the just, first thing you do? Uh, the first thing I did, you, you, you mean the first business I, yeah. I really took a shot at? 
first real business I did, it was called, uh, it was called Dixie Dirty Jobs. It was down in St. George, which is Utah's Dixie. And what I would do is uh, all week on Facebook, I would post, hey, I'll come haul your junk off, right? And I'd collect a bunch of things for Saturday. Then on Saturday morning, I would go and rent a truck from a storage facility. I'd go fill up the truck and go take it to the dump, go drop off the truck, sweep it off. I'd make four or 500 bucks. But that taught me unbelievable amounts. One, one of the biggest things I learned is that what I would do is I would bid on these jobs, right? But I'd be afraid of losing the job, so I would bid super low because I'm like, oh, I want to get the work. And then I'd be doing the work and be like, oh, my gosh, why am I doing this to myself? This is horrible. I hate this, right? And so I started to learn when there would be jobs that would come come up that I didn't want to do, I would bid so high that either they would accept and I'd be happy to do it because it was great money, or they would say no, and I'd be thrilled because I didn't have to do the job. And what I came to find out is that people will pay your price, right? The most limiting thing that people do is they're scared that somebody's going to tell them no instead of being scared that they're going to sign up to do something that's that they're vastly underpaid for. Right. And so I learned, I learned right then and there that if I'm worried about the price, then people aren't going to buy it. But if I'm justified in my price, then they will, you know, I'm not gouging anybody, but people will pay the price that you give them. And, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of thought about, well, you know, it honestly sounds sometimes like they're like profit and and margin is a dirty word, but it's not right. It is my responsibility to uh, maximize profits for the shareholder. It just so happened that uh, in that business, I was uh, the you only shareholder. Know <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you know, I love that you talk. You know, you you first describe yourself as like, oh, man, I'm a failed entrepreneur, or, or I can't remember exactly what you said, but it's something along the lines. But Really, it's not because you are learning every time you do something. So that's number one. What are some other lessons you've learned along the way to, to get you where you are? So you didn't stick with that, the dirty, dirty Dixie jobs. Dixie, so, dirty, jobs, Dixie yeah. dirty jobs. Yeah, so then what happened was I started uh, – uh, I was driving one time. I, I had quit the title company to go get my real estate license, right? And then I found out that there's more real estate agents uh, than houses for sale in St. George, and I was in big trouble. Right? And I had taken out a $20,000 loan from my younger sister. Now, at this point, I was in some dirty debt. Uh, I, was, I was about $100,000 in really bad debt. And the debt came uh, from where, though? Uh, I owed my father 40000 He had loaned me money to buy the truck and, and a couple other failed ventures. And and uh, I owed on credit cards. I, at this point, I had a 480 credit score because I had oh, missed yeah. so many payments. And every morning, I would wake up and have negative in my in my account. And you, you find out early on each morning, is it going to be a bio life kind of day where I only need 60 bucks to go bring my, my account back to... Uh, positive or is it going to be a really mean uh, Dixie Dirty Jobs kind of day where I have to go make a few hundred or even worse is it going to be a pawn shop day where I got to go take a few things down to the pawn shop you know what I mean and I was driving and I saw a guy that I used to serve tables with standing on the side of the road and I pulled over and I said hey you need a lift 
And he said, no, actually, I was, I was actually going to call you here in the next week. And he, he said, I'm, I'm doing door to door. I'm selling windows. Right. And, uh, let me tell you about it. We get paid once a week. This, 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 uh, you should come check it out. And I said, eh, okay. Because I had no other options. I was in big trouble. And I went home and told my wife that day. I said, I think this is a scam, but I'm not sure. And I went in and that guy, his name is Levi. He's actually my business partner now. We, we own Performance Windows together. But that was the start of me uh, in door-to-door. It was year-round, and it was it was great money for me at the time. Uh, eventually, I moved up from St. George up to northern Utah to knock windows and uh, and went through some struggles because I was doing it by myself. Um but eventually, we, me and Levi, uh, we kind of got screwed by the owner there, and we we opened our own. And that uh, go, go 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 back to to the part where you said, I, I, this guy Levi, he told me about this thing, and I went back to my wife. I said, man, this is a scam. And then I went anyways and did it. So yeah. what 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 was the the decision making there of being super skeptical of it, but actually going to do it? Yeah, you, you know the uh, there's a there's an expression and it it was a medieval one. It's actually from Game of Thrones, but it's uh, a flayed man has no secrets, right? And this, it's the same for me. Is that I was so broke that I had no choices, right? I, I didn't have the option of being skeptical, right? I could leave no stone unturned, right? My my uh, I was too broke to have to be too prideful. It was, I'd been humbled. I'd, I'd been shown the way. And because of that, I, you know, I, I mean, obviously we get to look at it through, through the lens of not luck, but blessings, but being able to find him at that moment and what it's led to now to us, of course, is, is a, is a godsend is that it changed the trajectory of my life. So you go and you start this. How long did you do it for the first company that, that you said he, he kind of messed you over? Yeah, we worked for him for about a year, year and a half. Uh, well, for about a year. And then I left to go do the same thing for a different company up north uh, because he wouldn't let me go. He wanted me to stay in St. George. Then I was really getting my butt kicked because I was just by myself. So I went and started working at a tech company. And at this tech company... Uh, I was making 40 G's as my base salary and a really just a pittance of a commission. And because I was, I was an SDR, right? A uh, sales development rep or, or a, a BDR, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it's phone sales, right? And I learned a lot of lessons there too, because uh, at this, at this tech company, they told I was, I was the top rep two months in a row. And they said, okay, if you do it again, we're going to, we'll let you be an AE, which then your, your earning jumps up to a hundred thousand, 150, which just sounded spectacular to me. So uh, I did it again. And then they told me after doing it for the third month in a row, they said, well, actually you need to be here for six months in order to be an account executive. And I just, couldn't believe it it just left such a bad taste in my mouth that that they had they had put something in my way i had done it and then 
They moved the goal. They didn't get through. They moved the goalpost on me. And then I remember they kind of moved some things around and they moved me into a different vertical where I, I didn't do well. And so that next month I did badly and they said, see, now you can't be an account executive. And I just, I learned what the corporate world was going to do to me, right? Because for me, I, I didn't become an entrepreneur because I can't work for somebody. I, I don't care about not working for somebody, right? Uh, I care about being able to get what's mine. And I remember they gave me SDR of the year, right? And a, a, a plaque. And I, I've still got it downstairs. I'm never going to give it away because it's always going to be a reminder to me. It's like in, uh, you watch The Office? Yep. Yeah, it's like Dwight when uh, they gave me a 13th employee of the month. In <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, I'll, I'll never forget that what they'll do to me when they've got the power to do so. Right. And so I, I knew then that I, I couldn't allow somebody to continue to do that to me. And so I, what I would do is at that tech company, I'd work nine to five since then Levi and I had reconnected and I started working for that original guy again up North. I'd get off from the tech company at 5 PM and I'd go knock doors from about six till seven thirty, And it would be very dark. So I had a camping lantern. I'd walk around like the crypt keeper and knock on doors and go to sell windows. And I was making more in the hour and a half after work than I was in the eight hours that I was at work. And I knew that I could no longer deny that I had to go back into that thing. Tell me about, uh, cause you, you, we, especially in the, in the LDS world, there's a lot of return missionaries that go to do the door knocking. But we, we typically hear security systems, pest control. I've never heard Windows. So yeah, and tell us a little about happy, that. We're happy for it. You know, it's, it's one of those things where when you find a niche and you're good at it, it just pays so filthy. And, and the problem with door-to-door, what we have in common with door-to-door is that we knock on doors, right? We, we've almost got a solar model where we've got a setter-closer model. But that's about it. We go year-round. Uh, we pay weekly. But the, the big thing is that when me and Levi, when we sat down to make the rules, right, uh, there was a couple of things that I set out that must happen. It must be a true meritocracy, which means uh, there is not, nothing that's up to judgment, Right. I'd been I'd been so burned by that corporate job that they have to hit these numbers and they're a closer, not well, they have to hit these numbers and impress us with with their with their resume. Right. There would be no outside hires from some other company to come be a closer because uh, instead of promoting me, other people had been hired from other companies. And I just felt spurned for for us. It was always going to be it had to be earned. The next thing that we made sure that we must do is that everybody must be paid no matter what. Uh, if they quit, it doesn't matter. We're still paying out. If they, you know, if they don't show up to work, if they don't, whatever it is, right? Because so much of the door-to-door world, people get burned because they'll have these golden handcuffs where they can't quit because they know that the company is just not going to give them their money, which to me is you know, we've all got to answer the question, are you honest in your dealings with your fellow man? And I just couldn't do that kind of thing to somebody. But the the big thing is that it's, it's like Tom, Mike Tomlin says, right? We want volunteers, not hostages. We don't make people sign non-competes. We don't make people, if you want to go and compete against us, we would love to because we're not scared of competing for sure. But I mean, 
we've been so blessed as we've really kind of blown up because we opened in April of 2020, right as the pandemic was kicking off. And I remember I was still working at Weave. The plan was for me to go another month until my son was born so I could get six weeks of paternity leave and and then quit. And uh, I remember I told Levi, he's like, well, well, we'll meet at a Starbucks every morning. I said, I'll tell you what, if we go get an office, an actual office, I'll go quit today. And he goes, oh, well, deal, because he wanted me all the way in on it. I called my sales manager, and I said, hey, uh, today's my last day. And he's like, oh, well, if you quit today, we're, we can't give you your commissions. I said, <laughs> well, my commissions are currently $130, so I'll be okay. <laughs> and uh, and we just jumped full on. It was April of 2020. We got so so blessed that in Utah, Everybody was home, but the state wasn't shut down. So we were catching everybody at home and we just, we exploded. We exploded. So you, you quit this and this is a relatively new company at 20, 2020 year, two and a half years, not even two and a half years in, um, when, when, when you go, is it just you and Levi that just go knock the doors and then you just grow from there? Like, how do you actually start and, and grow? So it was me and Levi as the ownership. Uh, then it was, we had one, two, three door knockers that came with us from, from the previous company. And uh, so I was closing all the deals. These guys were knocking doors and we just, uh, we, it was a blessing and a curse because we exploded early. And the promise we, we distribute for a company called Allside, right? And, the problem was that they told us that we wouldn't have to pay until the jobs got installed. Right. But I think they just thought that we weren't going to sell nearly as much as we did. And we were selling like crazy. So we get a call about three weeks in says, Hey, we can't sell you any more windows until you pay. The problem is that we can't collect payment until the windows have been installed. And so now we were in big trouble because we we knew that we would never not pay commissions. And so uh, immediately Levi, he went into, uh, he went into full on fundraising mode from family and friends. I, I didn't have any resources to tap. I, I was broke as a joke and it got to where Levi wouldn't take money for a long time. He didn't take money. I would take, uh, I think at the time it was a thousand bucks a week, right? But we were still working 14, 15 hours. And so Levi was able to raise $300,000. Mortgages were taken, second mortgages were taken out. Levi and I went a long time without paying ourselves. Levi was living on credit cards. He was thinking about going back and driving Uber as we're already operating and selling hundreds of thousands per month because. Then the pandemic really kicked in and our supply chain got pushed further and further out. So we're selling more and more and more, having to pay out commissions, having to buy windows, but not being only collecting on the money of the jobs that we sold in previous months. But we keep selling more every month. And so we were just, it was unbelievable. I remember Christmas, or not Christmas, the, the we opened in April. Come November, it was the... Saturday before Thanksgiving. And we said, you guys have all done so good. We're letting you take all of next week off. And they were just thrilled. We didn't 
didn't tell him it was because we needed to do some installs so we can catch up on money. I mean, we were we were just scratching, and to my partner's credit, he was scratching every surface he could for us to make money. And then finally, after a year, our financing company allowed us to take 30% up front, which you have to have a year to do so. And we finally got out of the woods. And that's when we started really just being able to blow up. How do you stay positive during this time of excitement, but, but struggle still? You have some hefty debts, both personally and as a business. And even though you are selling, there's, there's no money in the bank because of the financial setup you said you, you have because of being a new company. Yeah, I mean, honestly, for me, you know what, what's crazy now is that that was the time of my life because it's just, I mean, it was the Wild West. I mean, we were, we were every day was a new problem, and we just got to be triage nurses. And no joke, I mean, the having a business partner is, is no joke, especially if it's another, you know, uh, another dude with a similar personality to you because you guys are at each other's throats. I was working... 12 hour days. I mean, but six days straight. And I remember, uh, so I was doing all the closing, which means that I was working 12 hours a day. And I remember I didn't get to take a day off for two weeks. I finally had a day off and Levi was going to go run some appointments. Me and my wife are driving down to a date night and he calls me and says, man, my tire just blew. I had to turn back around with my wife, go drop her off and keep set and, and go to sell. And she was pissed for sure. But it's just, I mean, the, the thing is, it becomes so addicting to see that, you know, and when, when you look at it on a day-to-day basis, yeah, today sucks. But, man, look where we are. Look what we've done. Look how many people are working for us now. Look how, look how big the company is getting. And it's just every, every month will be a record month for us in terms of sales, which, you know, carried its own problems. But it just, you know, it's like, it's like an atomic habits, right? You know, James Clear, he talks about, he talks about getting these jars and moving one every time you complete a task, moving one paper clip from one jar into the other, right? Is that on a day-to-day basis, you're not seeing something, but then you just look at that jar and see how full it's getting. It's just, it becomes so validating that, okay, this thing will break for us at some point. We're, we're putting in the sweat equity, but it's just, uh, Levi absolutely is the warrior between the two of us. Me and him have a very good yin and yang, but I've always been of the philosophy that uh, anxiety is paying the debt twice because you're going to have to go deal with it at some point anyway, but I'm also not going to worry about it until it happens. You're doing you know, tens of million dollars in sales now. You've seen the, the, the great fruits of your labor. When you look back, and and see what you've kind of learned since you were 15? How, how have those past years helped to what you are now and what you hope to become in the future? I think the biggest thing for me has always been that, not to come off as uh, overly righteous here, but it's do what is right and let the consequence follow, right? But it's all, that, that translates a lot more to the, than just spiritually, right? Is that... Uh, it's not about if I could if I could not pay this guy's bonus, I could reasonably not pay this guy his bonus, right? But I do it anyway because it's what's the right thing to do, right? I could reasonably get off of get off of work today, but it's the right thing to go in and do the work. I could reasonably 
bail out of this thing, but it's the right thing to go do it, right? And what I've learned in my entire life is that shortcuts, they never work out, right? I mean, from the time when I was a kid, shortcuts, they, they, they have never once paid off how you want them to. And so for me, it, I, I had it instilled in me early that you do it right, you do it right, not not do it quick. And, and so I think that's the biggest thing that's always helped me in all aspects of my life is that uh, you do it the right way rather than the quick way. And I think that's, if you're comparing it, it's easier to say that when you're struggling. What about now that you're successful? Is that easy still to do now that you have a lot more money, a lot more employees, um, you, you know, the blessings have, have already poured in to, you know, is it still that easy to, to do what's right? Or, or do you feel that there's, you know, maybe the temptation to not or, or to, to make that shortcut? You, you know, honestly, I, I see a lot of, this is something I've, I've kind of discussed at length, but I see a lot, especially here in Utah, you see a lot of people who make money and then uh, for some reason or another, they fall away from the church, right? And what I've come to realize is it's because people, they get it confused and they start, they'll have some success and they'll believe well, it was me that did that. They'll start relying on the arm of flesh, right? It's the same thing as when a business guy who's had a successful business thinks now whatever business I touch will turn to gold. I've got the Midas touch, right? And so, in fact, it's pushed me even more to avoid that pitfall that I I constantly remember and realize that I'm a dummy. I'm a big dumb ape, and I want to dance with the one that took me to the ball. Right. And the one that took me there was always going to be the, the work, doing things the right way and, and honoring the commitments I've made both temporally and on high. What do you foresee for the, the, the future of this company? This is, you know, coming on three years. Um, you've had a, a, an incredible trajectory. Uh, how do you keep it going? Or, you know, what's the, what's the plan for, for the future? So our first year, we started in April. That year, we did four million. The following year, we did sixteen million. This past year that we just wrapped up, we did thirty-five million. And uh, what we've got in the plans for this year is seventy million. We, we do that by opening offices, and and a big thing for us is, is very much. Have you ever read uh, Who Moved My Cheese? Now you're you're hitting me all these shows and books I've never read. I guess yeah. you have that list that, of, that, of that, homework. That, that's a that, that's a great one. Who moved my cheese? It's a very quick read, but basically there's four characters. There's Sniff and Scurry, and then there's two others who I, I forget the names. But basically, it's there's two people who keep their head on the swivel, and there's two people who sit down and just uh, are happy with what they've got. And of course, the ones who keep their head on the swivel are able to continually uh, to find success. For us, the, the great part about having a, a partner is that uh, when he pulls back, I can lean in. When I, when I feel lazy or like uh, I don't want to keep growing, he pushes the tempo. And so for us, we're, we're keeping our head on the swivel, but our goal is to continue to continue to build this thing into something that is generational, right? We've already now the big thing is you got to make have goals that are big enough for other people's goals to exist within them. Right. So now we have people who work for us who started off as door knockers 
who are making north of a million dollars a year. And so if we want to continue to have these people who work for us, who have the goal of making a million, then we must expand and get bigger. And so that's been a big thing for us is that one, no matter what, if we make a promise to somebody, we always keep it. And so we're careful to not give promises away willy nilly. But two is that our goals must be big enough for everybody else to exist within them. So that's what keeps us pushing. When you're, when you're in this growth mode, I think, you know, your mindset is not always, you're looking forward. You're seeing how you can, you can do what's the next thing. Often as entrepreneurs, you know, we don't get take a chance to really look back and to see what we've done and what we've accomplished. When you're able to look back and we've been able to spend a little bit of time here together looking back, it is what you have accomplished, is that a surprise to you or is this something you always kind of knew that you were going to make it and accomplish this? You know... Nobody grows up and thinks I'm going to be a window man, right? Everybody says they're going to be a fireman or an astronaut or a rock star, right? Uh, I had a, a, a VP of sales at, at Weave. His name was Sky Povey. And he said in a post once, he, he wrote about how he had stepped into management, cut his pay in half, and threw himself for a year into reading every book he could and watching every management video. And he talked about how the passion does not precede the work. It follows it. And I've that's stayed with me for a long time because too often in life people tell you, well, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And it's a lie because the fact of the matter is that uh, do the work and you'll never not love a day in your life. Right? And so as I look back, it, it uh, I look back with – great fondness because of what we've been able to accomplish. But I also, uh, to say that I always knew that I'd be successful. The, the honest truth is that I knew that it, it, that I, I would never be happy unless I was doing something, um, you know, something that is amazing. Right. And, and I've been lucky enough to have a spouse that's very supportive of that. That's never once tried to hold me back or tell me not to do something. Uh, but you know, Levi, he, he explains this story about, you know, a server every once in a while, somebody will walk in and they'll play this game with you and they'll say, we'll pick a number between one and 10 and we'll pick your tip. Right. And it's the, it's the natural reaction to, to, to go low, to stay humble. Cause you don't want to, you don't want to offend so say six or seven, but the correct answer is 10. Uh, in Africa, they have an expression that if a baby doesn't cry, it will die. And for me, I've never stopped crying. I'm, I'm always going to ask for what's mine. And I love that you talked about your, your family as well throughout this whole thing. Uh, your wife being super supportive, your, your children that, that you're working for. When you look at the experiences that you've had, what are you trying to teach your children? I, I feel like something that has been running a consistent uh, theme through through your life is, is hard work and the work ethic. W- what are you trying to teach your children uh, from the experiences that you've had as you're now raising them and, and they're, you know, you want them to be successful too. Yeah. A big thing I want my kids to understand uh, is that you must work, right? There, there is, there is no free meals, uh, but that there are, 
you know, people say money doesn't buy happiness, right? And the fact of the matter is you've never seen an unhappy guy on a jet ski, but uh, I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather cry in my Lamborghini than on my bike. You know what I mean? But honestly, what, what money does is that it allows you to not worry about money, right? Me and my wife's biggest fights we would have would be when I was so broke and she had to ask permission to go spend $10. And now, you know, when we do fight, it, it's never about money, right? And so what money does is it takes away the the need to worry about money. And that's what I want my kids to understand is that happiness comes from the things that you do in life. Uh, money does not create happiness, but not having to worry about money allows you to to worry about what makes you happy, right? And money is one way that, you know, the world measures success. And, and it is a success, a, me- a measurement. But but I ask everybody this, you know how how do you measure success in your life? How I measure success honestly is is that the people around me don't have to worry, right? You know, if, if the people around me can not just financially, but they can rely on me that I'm the guy that gets it done, uh, that people don't have to worry. That's how I measure success is is the amount of people that trust me to be able to take care of them, not just financially, but to be able that they, if they're in trouble, they can call me. So uh, I guess I would measure success by the amount of people that know that they can rely on me. That's Kyle Deaver, co-owner and co-founder of Performance Window. Currently, they have offices in Utah, Idaho, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, and Florida with more on the way. And because of Kyle's genuine interest in the accomplishment of others, he also hosts his own podcast called Leave It to Deaver, where he interviews individuals who have found success of their own in all walks of life. You can find his show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please be sure to leave us a review and check out our website, www.fortuneandfaithpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. New episodes come out every second and fourth Monday of the month.